My hope this morning is that we would be enabled to complete our consideration of the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians and get on to the book of Romans, which I've already preached through for a course of many years. And I'm not saying it's going to be simple getting through Romans, but I'm going to try to do a little bit more abbreviation of things since I assume a certain knowledge of that letter more than any other letter. I think Second Corinthians, for many of us, has been a mystery. Um, and my wife has said as much, and I think for myself as well. Uh, this again, this is uh, Richard Hayes uh, makes the statement that uh, in reading the letters of the New Testament, it's like we're reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> and we're only reading one part of the correspondence. We're only getting uh, Paul's uh, statements. And there's lots of stuff that have gone has gone between him and the Corinthians that Paul knows about, the Corinthians know about it. We as readers of this letter, we don't know what it's about at all. We can uh, have, you know, educated guesses. We can have certain uh, sanctified musings on the subject and not be far off track, I I don't think. Clearly, Paul had problems with this church that he wanted to see resolved. He wanted to see this church brought back into the circle of churches that he had influence in because he was their founding apostle. I mean, that was his work, to found churches and then to uh, see that those churches were doing well even when he himself had left. And I think it's a helpful thing, um, and I've thought about this much because I've been doing Second Corinthians and also doing the book of Jeremiah, that Paul fashions his apostolic ministry very much along Jeremiah-type lines. Uh, we've mentioned that before. He says in the Galatian letter, just as Jeremiah was told that he was called from his mother's womb and sanctified, set apart to be a prophet to the nations, Paul uses almost the very same language being set apart from his mother's womb. Um, And he was sent to be not a prophet to the nations, but an apostle to the nations, or an apostle to the Gentiles. And there's many other expressions that Paul uses that clearly um, evidences he sees himself as kind of a Jeremiah-type figure. I think the Lamentations of Jeremiah, um, many of the long sections where he just issues forth the complaints about his hardships, and, you know, sometimes we think it's not right to complain before God, but who else can we complain to? Who else will have a heart to hear the, the complaints of our heart but, but, but the Lord? And he invites us to come and, and do what Jeremiah does, pour out our hearts before him. And even when sometimes we think Jeremiah's just gone a little bit too far and charging God, God with some types of injustice, but, again, to whom else shall we go? You know, we have the ear of God and we have the privilege to be honest in the presence of God with our burdens, with our concerns and with our needs. And Paul he tells us all about his hardships they're right before his eyes, he remembers them well and he views that as part of the glory of his apostolic identity. He doesn't see that as something that excludes him from being an apostle but it recommends him to be an apostle he has to boast in anything when to boast in his weakness, of course, uh, that pattern of weakness that's followed by power or death that's followed by life is most apparent in Jesus, who came amongst us in weakness and is raised in power, who dies and he then ascends and takes all authority in heaven and earth. Out of death comes life, out of weakness comes power. 
And Paul sees that as part of his apostolic ministry. And the Corinthians, sadly, have gotten too much of the ear of the world, too much of the ear of their culture that values power for its own sake and thinks that the way in which we can really thrive is just to be assertive, just assert our power, assert our authority. Paul has a sense of his authority, but it's an interesting thing. In two places, in chapter 10 and also in chapter 13, he uses an expression about his authority that the Lord had given him. And he says in both cases, for building up and not tearing down. For building up and not tearing down. Now, does that language have some Jeremiah implications? Just knowing what you know, particularly about chapter 1 of the book of Jeremiah. Building up and not tearing down. Remember language like that in the book of Jeremiah? Anyone? Tim? You have? Yes. I'm sorry? I would scoff to say yes. Yes? You remember language like that? I think so. You remember where it is? Right. Yeah, and it was for and it it began with tearing down. It began with overthrowing. It began with the work of destruction. In fact, there are four verbs in the Hebrew that begin Jeremiah's ministry as one of tearing down. And turn there to Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1, um, God's commission... Uh, is presented in the words of verse 9 then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth and the Lord said to me over and against his objections that he's only a youth he says behold I've put my words in your mouth Uh, see I've set you this day excuse me I'm going to have to put on these glasses because I really can't read without them I need the magnifiers Um, behold I've put my words in your mouth See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And listen to the words. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. Four words that speak of absolute destruction. And then two words that speak of building and planting. And if we ever do get back to the book of Jeremiah, I'm uncertain about being able to come out this evening. We're going to have to see. But the next time we do come out in the evening and we're all together and uh, do... A review or an overview of the book of Jeremiah. In a real sense, this is the program for the book. This is how the book is set out. Jeremiah's ministry in the first 25 chapters is a ministry of plucking up, breaking down, destroying, and overthrowing. All of the things that pertain to the life of the old covenant people of God. God was going to completely dismantle. And how was he going to dismantle it? Well, through the Babylonian captivity. And the Babylonian captivity would come and take away from the people everything that made their lives significant and important as Israelites, or as residents of the city of Jerusalem, as people of the tribe of Judah. Because what is God going to do? Well, in the early part of chapters of the chapters in chapter 7, God sends them up to the temple. And there the temple's going to be destroyed. The temple's going to be dismantled. dismantled. The temple's going to be overthrown. And in fact, in 586-87 BC, when the Babylonians came and torched the city, what did they do? They destroyed the temple. 
The very thing they boasted in saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As long as we have the temple of the Lord, we're safe. As long as we have the temple of the Lord, we, we're, nothing can harm us. Babylonians can't overthrow us. Look what God did in the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib and his armies were turned away right at the, out at, right at the gates of Jerusalem. And God won the victory. God's going to do this again. And that was their confidence. And, and, and that was what Jeremiah had to deal with, is their sinful sense of security and of um, just taking for granted that everything was okay, even when everything was not okay. Judgment was going to be coming. And the whole perspective was just to dismantle. Dismantle the covenant, dismantle the city, dismantle the kingdom of David, dismantle the covenant itself, dismantle um, the sense of the special nature of their relationship to God as the elect of God, the chosen of the Lord. All that's going to be taken away. And they're going to be sent away into Babylon. And then in the latter part, in chapter 26 to the end of the chapter, there's not every place, but there's large sections of hope and of promise of divine restoration. In other words, building and planting. The architectural word of building the house of God, building a new temple, building the kingdom, building the house of David. This is going to be the work of restoration. God's going to restore. And um, then the planting is the the agricultural term of the same thing. Uh, Trees of righteousness, uh, the Lord's planting. That's what you're going to be. You're going to be the planting of the Lord. And uh, and all the nations are going to come and dwell in the the great olive tree or the great uh, um, mustard tree that the smallest of the seed becomes the greatest of them in Jesus' parable. So there's hope of, of restoration. And the latter part deals with that subject of divine restoration. And, you know, we live in, in the days of the promise of that restoration. The Christian church exists within the promise of that work of God to restore. And that work of God to restore is ultimately not Cyrus's decree that the people could go back to Judah. It was Jesus' incarnation. It was Jesus coming into the world, living, dying, rising, reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we live in the light of that achievement. We live in the light of restoration. Um, we're going to see it this morning in John 16. We live in the light of the fact that uh, in the world you have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's a reality. We live in the light of his overcoming. We think we're the ones that have to be the great overcomers. We're, and we do, in the sense, faith is the thing that does a, is the victory that, through which we overcome. But we overcome as those who have already overcome in Christ. In Him we have peace. I say these things to you that in me you would have peace. Um, the world has, is going, going to give you trouble. If you're not, I've overcome the world. So in a sense, the troubles of the world are, are really minimal compared to the great realities I have come and the re- fact I've overcome. So we live in the light of the achievement of the new covenant. And in the achievement of the new covenant, I don't think covenant ministers or ministers of the new covenant, Paul calls them earlier on in the book of Second Corinthians, should see their calling to be basically that of going out and destroying stuff. Going out and tearing stuff down. Going out and plucking down. <laughs> I mean... That's been done. Sin has been the great dismantler of all the hopes and confidences of a fallen humanity. 
And it was the great dismantler of the old covenant. But now a new covenant has come in Jesus. And Paul sees himself as a minister of the new covenant whose main work is not tearing down. He's looking at a church that's tearing itself apart. He's looking at a church that's not securing or seeking its own interests. And Paul says, I don't want to do more harm to this group than I need to. My concern is the authority the Lord has given me not to tear down but to build up. So that's Paul's understanding. Again, back to Romans 13, it's the first I mentioned Wednesday night, where love does not do harm to its neighbor. And Paul is someone who loves the Corinthians, who was concerned for their well-being. He does not want to do harm. That's why when he came on that second visit, that painful visit that he mentions back in chapter 2, he left. And he sent Titus in his stead. He said, there's not much I could do here to solve the situation now. It's, uh, maybe I'm not the voice, maybe I'm not the man. Things are too, whatever it was, tense, difficult, whatever. It's not Paul is uh, washing his hands with the concerns, but he's saying, well, you know, the Lord has a lot of tools in the toolbox. And part of the tools in the toolbox is he has other men. He has other ministers, and I have associates. I have guys like Titus. Titus may be the very one who's going to be able to be used of God to bring the people back. But Paul's concern was that they would be restored. There would be restoration. Again, the latter part of Jeremiah's commission. Paul sees himself as that kind of a Jeremiah figure who is set apart to the work of, of, of the Lord for the spreading of the gospel to the nations and in spreading to the gospel to the nations he's not going among the nations looking to pull apart, tear down and destroy destroy stuff that's, that's already there that's, that's in a fallen world his work is to preach the gospel in such a way as to see the Lord form a church and seeing the Lord form a church see that that church is built up Jesus says I will build my church he doesn't say I'll destroy the world He says, I will build my church. And in fact, in John's gospel, there are those statements. He came not uh, to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's that positive aspect of the ministry. Not that there's not negative aspects to ministry today. But I'd say most of the negative stuff is the stuff that's done through the preaching of the gospel. And through the preaching of the gospel, the working of the Spirit, um, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So, uh, again, that's God's doing through the Word. And again, I think of Luther just saying, we, we, we just went and we drank beer, and the Word of God did all the work. That was his confidence. I'm not a beer drinker, don't want to be a beer drinker, but I still have that confidence that the Word of God will do the work. And that work can be a positive work. We don't have to be crippling each other through tearing each other down. And... Uh, saying, well, we're right, you're wrong. and uh, No, we, I trust as the people of God who understand what the church is supposed to be, we want to get it right. We want to live in love with one another. We want to fulfill God's will for his church. And that's not to be on the warfare. That's to be abounding in goodwill and peace and a concern to build one another up and not tear, one another down, not, not tear others down. And in authority that the ministers of the gospel have. Paul says that's what we do. We're ministers of the new covenant. And that means we build up and we don't tear down. 
But just the references to that, I, I mentioned the language, and then we'll go into this uh, this section. Second um, Corinthians chapter uh, ten, I believe it is, and I got to put the glasses back on. So I, I got to take them off to see you, but I could put them on to read. So that's what I'm. Again, you know, don't have the use of the two eyes. Maybe a couple weeks I will, but uh, we'll see. We're here in Second Corinthians chapter ten. Um, It's in verse uh, 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, he says, which the Lord gave. It's God's authority. I'm exercising the authority God gave. What kind of authority did God give? He says, for building you up and not for destroying you. Not concerned to tear you down. Not concerned to pluck you up. I'm not concerned to overthrow you. I'm concerned to build you up. That's the authority. That's the, the mandate. That's the, I use the term remit. That's the work. That's the portfolio. That's what Paul as an ambassador of the gospel is called to do. Um, to build you up. And, and then um, you see it again in uh, chapter 13. Um, verse 10. As he concludes the letter. This reason I write these things while I am away from you. That when I come... I may not have to be severe in the use of the authority that the Lord has given me for what? For building up and not for tearing down. Again, the Jeremiah language comes in again. And again, it's the second part of the book of Jeremiah. That part that speaks of the new covenant. He's a new covenant minister. Chapter 31, Jeremiah speaks of the new covenant. He's a new covenant minister. His work is to, is, is, is um, restoration. His work is to build you up and not to tear you down. So, the last part of the letter, Paul is anticipating a third visit. And in anticipation of this third visit, I mean, he's already said everything he could possibly say to these people concerning his motives, concerning his love. Again, he's been torn. Others have tried to tear him down. They've looked to assert whatever influence they have to make people think ill of Paul, to question his motives, and just about everything. Everything they they raised as issues. And uh, Paul's not going to continue to defend himself. He's going to speak in the generalities of his love. He's going to speak of the generalities of what demonstrates that he is an apostle of Jesus. The sufferings he has endured in weakness, and, and yet he's known the power of God in the midst of his weakness. And now he's paving the way for this third visit. Now, third visit. Let's review. What were the other two? What were the other two visits that Paul paid to Corinth? And where do we read about them? Where do you read about the first visit? Where do you think you'd read about the first visit? What's that? First Corinthians. Um, no, actually, Acts. the book of Acts. Yeah, that's where you'd find it. In Acts chapter 18, Paul comes to Corinth on, I believe it's the third missionary journey. And uh, again, he stays there for uh, 18 months, a year and a half he spends in Corinth. And then he leaves, and uh, he's probably at Ephesus when he wrote the first letter, and he'd heard from the house of Chloe of certain problems in the church and uh, addressed those problems. And then soon after he addressed that letter, he went and he paid them another visit. But it was not quite in the order that they thought he would visit, but he heard the 
there were problems and he made this like emergency visit there, this unexpected visit and it was a visit that didn't go well and it's a painful visit he talks about earlier I believe it's in chapter 2 well you'll find it, it's earlier he makes the second visit and, he, and that's what you read about in, um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and so along with the painful visit there was also a painful letter a lot of people think the painful letter was 1 Corinthians I don't think so I think it's something that he wrote uh, in the light of the painful visit and the painful visit was not his first visit the painful visit was his second visit and um, now he's planning a third visit and again the second visit didn't go well um, and again we don't know all the details we just don't, didn't go well and yet he's hopeful because he, he, his brother Titus had come and had declared uh, what resolution what uh, clearing what repentance uh, that the people had and so he's hoping to get back uh, to Corinth but now he wants to pave the way for his third visit so that it wouldn't be a difficult one and again I think you saw that uh, in chapter 13 and verse 1 this is the third time I'm coming to you um, and I'm sorry that's not exactly the, 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 the verse I was thinking of but uh, let's see it's in chapter um, 14 uh, chapter 12 and verse 14 he says here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you and again this is one of the things likely that the false teachers were accusing Paul of uh, he says he robbed other churches not to burden you but uh, look I mean he sent uh, 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 Titus they're talking about this collection he wants money he's after money Paul's going around the churches and he's just collecting money and for, his, it's for himself and Paul says, I, I don't want to be a burden to you. Again, financial burden, because he didn't burden them with his support when he was there in 1 Corinthians 9. He worked with his hands as, in his trade as, uh, as a leather worker, as a tent maker, uh, however that's to be translated. And um, so he doesn't want to burden them in terms of uh, uh, finances. Um, he says, for I seek not what is yours but you. My concern is not what you have, but what you, who you are. My concern is you. And again, earlier on, when he spoke about the collection, that he said that's what God's concern was. It's not what you can give, but it's that uh, it's you. You gave yourself first to the Lord, and then uh, to us through Him. Um, so you had a response to the Lord uh, personally. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Uh, he's concerned with the heart, not with the amount. Um, and I'm con- not concerned with the amount I'm not concerned with the line in my pockets my main concern in the collection is the needy saints in Jerusalem it's not my own support regardless of what these other uh, people have said I'm, I'm not concerned to burden you I seek not what is yours but you and then he uses this illustration and again he's in a relationship of the parent to the child uh, through his gospel they were begotten as a church and they come to spiritual life and uh, he's the uh, um, uh, the parent for children are not obligated to save up for their parents although some of us still do live in hope <laughs> sorry um, well the order in the ancient world is, is the responsibility of the parents to make provision for their children in life to give them a good start in the world um, parents for their children and hence as a good parent, again, I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned uh, for your well-being. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'm not looking for you to spend on me. I'm looking to spend on you. My energies, my talents, my gifts, 
my influence, my compassion, my kindness, everything I can give to you, I'm ready to give. I'm ready to spend and be spent for your souls. You don't have to spend on me. I'm concerned to spend on you. And he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? And again, the law of reciprocal love should be that as you extend your love and love to others, um, the proper response should be love. We love because he first loved us. There should be that reciprocal love, and certainly amongst the people of God. Uh, no kindness should be meant with icy stares. No kindness should be meant with a rebuff or a reproof or the back of your hand or walking away. Kindness of God's people to one another should be met with kindness. Love should be met with love. And even if there is no love, love is to be initiated. We're the ones to initiate love towards the people of God. And so, am I to be loved less? (laughs) Are you not to respond as you ought to respond in love to the love that seeks to spend on you and give to you and be used of God for you? But granting, he says in verse 16, I myself did not burden you. I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. And again, that's what the false teachers are saying. They're putting these seeds of doubt into the minds of the Corinthians, questioning Paul's motive. He's just a crafty old soul. He's looking to get more by just uh, tricking you into thinking that he loves you and you love him in return. So you dig a little deeper and give a little more. Um, He says, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? Uh, Did I send Titus to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? You come and say, now now that I'm here, the free will offerings begin on a regular basis. You've got to pony up the the, the cash. Uh, The ministry needs the money. We can't do the work of the Lord unless we get the money. And Paul says, did we not act in the same spirit? Now some think that's the Holy Spirit. I just think, you know, the same spirit of, of, of living, the same designs and desires for the well-being of the church. We, we operated in one heart towards you, in one sentiment towards you. And he says, did we not take the same steps? And then in verse 19 he says, have you, not, have you been thinking all along do we have defending ourselves to you? Do you think this is, I'm writing this letter for the purpose of my own self-defense. He says it's in the sight of God. We have been speaking in Christ. This is not a letter written for Paul defending himself. Paul's defending the gospel. Paul's defending the interest of the Corinthians to be properly related to their apostle. The apostle that Jesus sent to them. And it's for their benefit, not his. It's not for the advantage of his reputation. It's for their spiritual good. It's in the sight of God. We've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. Again, the Lord has sent me not to tear down, but to build you up. My concern, again, is not to take anything from you, but to build you up. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not, I, I, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That's Paul's fear. The influence of these false teachers, whatever it is that's been bothering these Corinthians, all all issue, and continued bitterness and rancor, uh, disappointment in one another, distrust of one another, uh, that my visit to you will not be what I'm hoping it will be, that I will not be to you what I am in truth, that you will have a poisoned attitude towards me and poisoned affections towards me. Um, and that the result of that will be all the, the fruits of the flesh, that perhaps they'll be quarreling uh, 
jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. And all those things are defined as part of the work of the flesh that are manifest, that brings bitterness and division and uh, biting one another, devouring one another. That's the last thing Paul desires. He's a new covenant minister who has authority to build up, not tear down. And again, I think that's why he left at the second visit, because things were getting destructive. And he's not an agent of destruction. He's an agent of edification. He's an agent of building up the church. He says in verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they practiced. Getting back to many of the concerns of the first letter. And again, a lot of times when uh, people are operating in the works of the flesh with respect to the social sins like anger and bitterness and um, hostility, um, there's also other fleshly sins and usually sexuality or, in, or, or idolatry enters in. Just an impure heart before God. They've changed towards others because they're practicing things that they know they should not be practicing. They have fear perhaps of discovery. They have fears of um, you know, people finding out what things that they're doing. But they just have a bad conscience. And the product of a bad conscience also, oftentimes is lashing out. It's becoming defensive. It's becoming distrusting. It's separating ourselves from others when we should be drawing near. So again, Paul's concern is to pave the way for this visit. He doesn't want this visit to go bad again. And the, the only thing that can make it go bad is sin. <laughs> the only thing that can make it go bad is the fact that they've not repented of the former things that already Paul's addressed. He's addressed it in the first letter. Things that Titus addressed when he was among them. Things that they should be putting away. And so Paul then, in the final chapter, and again, it's an interesting thing to see how Paul ends his letters. Um, there's not a whole lot of personal stuff that's here in this final chapter. He kind of compared that to Romans 16. We read that a couple weeks ago in our morning worship. And all the people that Paul's greeting, greet this one, greet that one. This one's useful for me for ministry. This one is chosen in the Lord. This one is, and all these things he's saying about these people, they're just evidence that was just warmth and genuine appreciation of love and ministry. And Paul doesn't really have that. He, again, he wants that restored. He wants that brought back. But it won't be brought back if there's not repentance of these things, if there's not a willingness to work with their own apostle, regard him, respect him, and put away the things that are in, putting them in opposition to him. Because again, his motive is building up. His motive is their good. His motive is to spend and be spent for their well-being. Why would you turn your back on someone like that? Paul says this is the third time, chapter 13 and verse 1. Now let's just quickly uh, run through this material. Um, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses bringing up the law. Um, again, witnesses. That means they've seen it. 
It's not just that they've heard about it. Or we've heard this man is a troublemaker. We've heard that this man just is filled with craftiness and deceit. He's looking to pull the wool over your eyes. So did, you just see, did you see him do that? Which one of you is speaking this way? Which one of you actually saw an incident that you can testify of Paul doing that? And it's not just one. You've got to get at least two. At least two. Three would be great. At least two. You've got to have at least two. Who will be eyewitnesses of the things they are talking about. Otherwise it's just slander. Otherwise it's just gossip. You've got to challenge these people who are making these assertions. He says, I warned in verse 2, those who sinned before. And all the others... And they warned them now while absent. I mean, it's not that Paul was without warning to these people. He served notice on these people. I warned them now while absent as I did when present. On my second visit. I came among you that second time. That painful visit. It wasn't that I shied away from giving you warning. But I warned you that if I come again, I will not spare them. Maybe he's thinking of church discipline. Cutting them off from the people of God. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, and kind of like parenthetical statement, he's not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful among you. Again, it's power that followed the weakness, the weakness of his dying. And again, Paul's apparent weakness is not weakness in and of itself. It's the weakness that leads to power. It's the weakness that leads to triumph. It's the weakness that leads uh, to following Christ in his, his own example. He was crucified in weakness. He lives by the power of God. Why are you so offended in weakness? How in the world should a Christian be offended in, in weakness? As, oh, he's not just a, a self-confident TV preacher. And everybody loves to send money to. <laughs> Go figure. That's how the world works. But this is not how the church works. That's not the values we should be seeing among the people of God. Christ was weak in his crucifying love. Gave himself into the hands of his, of his persecutors. You're the son of God. Um, Come off of the cross. He could have done that. He could have, but he didn't. Crucified in weakness. He lives by the power of God. We also are weak in him. We are cruciform in our understanding of how we live the Christian life. Um, crucified together with him. Um, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. We're not going to shy away from what needs to be done. Especially when we have the power of God. We have the presence of God. We have the word of God. We have the power of the Spirit all on our side. The people who are opposing us don't have those, those dynamics. But again, it's, it's not self-assertion. It's not self-will. It's everything based upon um, what God in Christ has achieved. Everything that's based upon what God does by the power of the Spirit, that your again, your faith will not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, that your confidence would not be in human uh, tools of uh, warfare, 
but those things that are mighty through God to the casting down of strongholds, that um, you would see that it's always weakness that precedes power, always death that precedes life. And so Paul then issues them the challenge. You're looking for proof of Christ speaking in us? Turn the tables. Examine yourselves, he says in the words of verse 5. You see whether you are in the faith. Put yourselves to the test. Uh, you've been busy testing us. But, you know, before you do that business of testing others, you should be testing yourselves. Again, Jesus said, take the, the beam out of your own eye. And then you can see clearly to take the little speck out of the eye of others. We have to be looking at ourselves. And again, when Paul issues the command to deal with those that are overtaken in a trespass in Galatians, he, he adds the words, looking to yourselves, lest you be tempted. Look to yourself. You do the work of a spiritual doctor for others, how's your own health going? You know, when you try to doctor others, are you spreading a disease to them? Are you looking to catch a disease? You have to look to yourself that you can be the proper physician of others, that you can be the proper, interesting, eye surgeon of others. You don't want people messing around with the log. <laughs> I mean, the speck, the speck. Well, they got a log in their own eye. I may bring that up to my ophthalmologist when I see him on Tuesday. We'll see. Test yourselves, he says. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. We've approved ourselves in every way that we are the Lord's, that we've been faithful, that we're not motivated by self-interest, that we have all the marks of an apostle. We've demonstrated this again and again and again throughout this letter. We pray to God in verse 7 that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. He wants them to do the right thing. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We're glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your, your restoration is what we pray for. Amazing, isn't that? I mean, the Jeremiah note again. <laughs> the note of restoration. The building up and the planting. That's what Paul's about. He's about the restoration of this church to its proper place amidst the constellation of the churches doing the will of God from the heart. Um, Not listening to false teachers, not having another Jesus, not having another spirit, not having another gospel. He wants them to be restored to a proper relationship to Christ, his gospel, um, his spirit, his apostle, one another, He wants them restored that they might be effective. Those salt would not lose its savor. That they would be able to be useful uh, for the progress of the gospel in the world. So we pray for your restoration. Lord, restore restore the Corinthians. We're glad when we are weak. I'm sorry, verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. We're getting close to the end, so I, I can't stop now. Uh, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come this is what I was looking for before he says uh, that when uh, I come I may not have to be severe in the use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and for not tearing down that's uh, 
Paul Jeremiah speaking in terms of the latter part of the ministry that God's given to the new covenant for the purposes of restoration, for the purposes of building up, for the purposes of edification. Finally, brothers, rejoice. And again, you just have to again love that Paul doesn't say strangers. He doesn't say you guys are Corinth. He says brothers. They're still brothers. And he treats them as brothers. Even in the midst of all of the stuff that's passed between them, even in the midst, he's hopeful. He's hopeful that these are genuine believers. They have been baptized in the name of Jesus. They have received the gospel. They have given evidence of the Spirit of God working in their midst. And even though there are these things that you could bring about, bring up uh, that speak negatively about them, Paul's not about to say, well, I'm, I'm going to get negative. No, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. He says, I pray for restoration. Now you aim for it. When I'm praying for you seek. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Get out of the warfare game. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Live in the shalom that the gospel brings. The Hebrew word for peace that is so so far superior to the Greek word. Um, Sorry, Irene, but it is the name Irene. Irene. (laughs) It's a great word, peace. When it's especially seen on a Hebrew background, the Greeks just thought it meant the cessation of a conflict. But the Hebrew words saw far greater things in the word peace in that there's restoration of all the effects of the conflict. It's not just that the conflict is ended and all the buildings are still smashed to pieces, but everything's built back up. And the garden, the, the, the desert becomes a garden. The, um, the destroyed city becomes a faithful city. So the exact opposite of everything that was true in sin is now occurred. There's well-being. There's the positive aspect of well-being. Not just that the war is over, but well-being has been restored. That's the idea behind the Hebrew idea of shalom. And so he says to live in shalom. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet, again, God dwells in the midst of a people uh, who seek to reflect his grace and his love and his image. Uh, he will be with you. He's, he's, he, the fact, if you, if, if you, if you do these things, he, he's, he's, he's there inspiring those very things that he now comes to bless with his presence. Then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the saints greet you. And then it concludes with that wonderful um, word of um, doxology, uh, the benediction of uh, chapter 13, 14, which again is Trinitarian to the core. Um, Again, you would just say, "May may, may God be with you. May Yahweh be with you. That would be the Old Testament version of this thing. But the Christian God is not just a singularity. It's a trinity. The Christian God is a trinity, and hence the benediction is a triune benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the fact that this is so Trinitarian to the core, yeah, it really can be seen in that you could take every one of those things, grace, love, and fellowship, and switch it around. Teach other persons, and it makes biblical sense. 
Because the Bible speaks not just of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks of the grace of God the Father. It speaks of the grace of the Holy Spirit. It speaks of the love not just of the Father, but the love of Christ. And it speaks of the love of the Spirit. And fellowship is also marked by not just that we have fellowship with the Spirit, but we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus. He said that in the first letter. Um, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. And John in 1 John chapter 1 speaks of our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Every one of those things uh, come from the same God. Um, it's not just you coordinate it off and say, well, just uh, one person gives grace and the other person gives love and the other person gives fellowship. No, the triune God gives all these things to his people. And uh, though they may at some points be focusing upon one person, it doesn't exclude the others because all of them are at work. In unified operations of to do blessing, to do good, to achieve the welfare of, uh, of the people of God. Well, folks... Uh, I did what I said I'd do this morning. I said I'd get through the rest of Second Corinthians with a bunch of stuff along with it. But I hope it's been helpful. Uh, we have a couple of minutes if there are questions. Feel free to raise a question, comment, argument. If not, let's give God thanks. Father, we're thankful again we could come into... amongst your people with open Bibles to to study what great things you have taught us, what great things you have done. Uh, We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the greatness of your grace and love and fellowship that you've bestowed upon us. Indeed, we are a blessed people and and we are glad. And we thank you for... um, just the opportunity again to assemble as the saints and to be encouraged by your word. We pray the things we've looked at in scripture this morning would be beneficial, that we would be builders up of others as well as being built up in our faith. Lord, so often we want to be built up. We ask that you would strengthen us and edify us and, and teach us and do all these things for us. And yet, Lord, how little sometimes we think of doing those things for others, of praying for others, praying for full restoration of faith, hope, and love amongst the church, of seeking, aiming for the full restoration of faith, hope, and love amongst the people of God. Teach us the importance of these things. Teach us to pray for them. Teach us to seek them. And Lord, we're thankful that in the midst of all of the struggles, problems, difficulties, all the pain and anguish that Paul experienced in his relationship with the Corinthians, we have such a blessed letter that has come to us that we might profit by. So help us to make good use of what you have revealed. And we pray your blessing would be upon us. Be with us as we greet one another this morning. Be with us as we enter in to the hour of worship ahead of us. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.